1: Happy New Year! It's 2024! 1-1-2024! One, one, Yay! I say that, not because the world isn't burning around us, but I want to stay positive this morning, um, because 2023 is done. There were many horrible things that happened. Yep, many positive things that happened in 2023, but on the whole, I am ready to put 2023 to bed. And that's what I did last night. Even before ringing in 2024 because I wanted 2023 to go away so quickly, I made that happen. And Mark and I were in bed at 11.01. We watched the ball drop in New York in Times Square and watched Anderson Cooper get drunk on TV. Don't recommend it. It wasn't great TV. Uh, But we stayed up till 11 o'clock. And I was... You know, um, then texting with some friends, you know, a Happy New Year, friends that live far away and whatnot. A lot of people were in bed by 11 o'clock. Were you? I'm very curious to know if anybody stays up till midnight anymore. I believe my children were up. They were partying. So I think my children were up. Okay, so maybe anyone under the age of 21. <laughs> if anybody's staying up till midnight. David is 30. Six now? Uh, yeah, seven. Thank you, though. Oh, sorry, you're 37. I always make him younger. He's our baby. Um, you have two small kids. I do. Were you up till... And David, Happy New Year.
2: Happy New Year to you, Jordana.
1: Happy New Year. Uh, were you up till till midnight last night?
2: Of course I was, because to me, the, it's, the New Year is a holiday. It's a time to celebrate. And w- what are we doing on this planet if not taking time to celebrate occasions like New Year's, and I don't think I have ever been sleep. I mean, since I was a young child, been sleeping really? at midnight on New Year's Eve. Uh, and I, I, it baffles me, and I did, I did a little impromptu poll yesterday, and I asked a number of people, and most people I was surprised were in your camp. Oh, no, we'll watch the one on the East Coast and go to bed, or no, it's just another night, and I, I was surprised by that. I thought more people stayed up and rang in the New Year, but I guess not.
1: Is that why I hear that frog in your throat? Because you were up so late partying like a teenager? Uh,
2: well, I don't know if I was partying like a teenager, but I was up very late last night. Uh, that's a, that's a combination of being up late and the nagging cough that everyone seems to have right now. That everybody, sure. right?
1: So we apologize in advance for that. So six five one four six one nine two two six. Very curious to know if you stayed up till midnight and if anybody still does that, and then how it was. I will say this, Mark and I. You know, poured a drink, not even a big drinker anymore. We poured a drink, and we kissed each other on midnight. I like that um, idea, that tradition Mm -hmm. of a New Year's kiss, Mm -hmm. because I still have hope. Despite terrible things that are going on, I think if you lose hope, then you're really in trouble. So I still have hope for the new year that is going to be a better year. I have hope for the future that it is going to get better. That truths will be revealed, and we will be able to come together peacefully. And um, justice, in, not that which is different than fairness, justice, and uh, for what, whatever that looks like, uh, will be served. So I still have a lot of positive things. I, ha- I always have hope uh, for health and happiness and success and peace and all of those things. Um, I just was ready to put it to bed. And I don't know, at 51, I guess I'm not staying up that late anymore. And most of my friends, even those who did party or go out or go to events, they're mm-hmm. like, yeah, but we hope to be home by 10. <laughs> so I was like, all right, I don't feel so bad. I don't feel so bad about wanting to you know, uh, be in bed by 11. We watched the ball drop and that was the end of it. Uh, listen, dear listener, please forgive me. I am having some serious, Wi Fi issues today, so I cannot pull up the text line. So, David, you might have to be on that for me because I can't see if people are texting in uh, right now. So, I want to know. You, you'll, you'll just have to call me and do it the old school way at 6514619226. 6514619226. Did you stay up till midnight last night? Do you do the kiss? Do you have another tradition? I'd like to know if this is. Uh, still happening and how you celebrated last night because we want to start the show on a very good note. We are going to get into all of the new laws you are hearing in the news. We're going to get into some predictions of some eating trends in the new year. We're going to talk about that. We will talk about sharing your truth and how that helped you. We will talk about forward thinking things. But one thing that we are going to address in depth is this conflict and this war that is happening between Israel and Hamas and what is going on in Gaza and what is going on in Israel. Over the last few days, you and I have not gotten a a real chance to talk about this in depth. I hope many of you read the New York Times article about the sexual violence that Hamas used uh, as a weapon of war, not resistance, Uh, how they have weaponized sexual violence. And while I started the show on a positive note with hope, there have been very, very dark days these last few days, knowing what has gone on during that conflict and on October 7th and in the wake of October 7th. Because even though it is January 1 for many people, it is also day 87 for a lot of us that know that there are still babies in Hamas captivity that there are toddlers that are hostages, grandmothers and grandfathers, and young men and young women, 129 of them, that are still hostages of a terrorist organization halfway around the world. And for me, as much as I try to hold on to hope, it feels as the world has gone mad, that there, we live in a time where there are hostages, there are innocent people who were just having breakfast who have been taken and raped and tortured and are still being held in captivity. And there are people in this country that are sympathizing with terrorists. And I have to look around and I do this gut check with lots of different people. Am I crazy? Am I the crazy one to think that this is wrong? When I see, as I did this morning, a statement from the university of Minnesota. Yeah, that's right. You heard it. The University of Minnesota, a statement on Palestine genocide repression from the American Indian Studies and College of Liberal Arts. It is such a disgusting statement. And Maddox got into the University of Minnesota. He got a nice scholarship. And while I think that the University of Minnesota, you know, is probably a decent institution, when I see its educators there, in this statement, calling what's happening in Gaza a genocide, which is not. And any educated person knows the definition of genocide is not what's happening in Gaza. Ten years ago, there were 1.1 million Gazans. Today, there are 2.2 million Gazans. That is the opposite of a genocide. That is a population boom. And to see professors at the University of Minnesota twisting words, and spreading propaganda and things that are untrue. That hope that I had for the new year feels heavy. It feels darkened. It feels dampened. And I don't want my son to go to school there, knowing that there are professors teaching there. And any of you who sends your tuition money there, I will read you the statement as soon as I can get my Wi-Fi working. And again, I apologize for the technical delays. But... I thought and forgive my existing cold it's lasted for a long time but um I figured today on this new year this is something we have to address I Jordana have not been the same since October 7th and while I maintain hope in America I cannot shield my eyes from the horrors that are going on on the other side of the world for innocent people so coming up next we're going to speak with Ephraim Cohen. He is a former U.S. diplomat, an American, now living um, in Israel, now uh, an American-Israeli. Former U.S. assistant to the Special Envoy to Combat Anti-Semitism. He has served in Baghdad after the Gulf War. He served uh, in Israel during Operation Ar- Iraqi Freedom and the Second Lebanon War. He has seen war. He has seen terrorism. And he has a bird's-eye view to this conflict that is going on and will offer some clarity on what people in this country are clouding. Jordana here. It's a serious conversation. That is also how we're starting the new year because there are things we need to address that must be addressed. Every day for me is October 7th, and as much as I am working hard to find happiness, that is also a Jewish tenant. You must find happiness every day. I am working hard. Um, I am so deeply affected by things that happened. And um, in the wake of the New York Times interview, in the wake of this statement from the university, uh, I will share more with you with Ephraim Cullen. That's up next. Yes, it is 2024, a time for hope, some renewed strength. But I want you guys to understand that for me, it is day October 87, uh, 87 days since October seventh, um, And this horrific terrorist attack on innocent civilians and still over 120 people. Some Americans are still hostage in Gaza from a terrorist organization, Hamas, that raped, brutally murdered, tortured, and again, has still taken people hostage. And when I read statements like the University of Minnesota, colleges of liberal arts and American Indian studies that say... Advancing justice for crimes of genocide that we proclaim, we proclaim unequivocal solidarity with the Palestinian people who presently suffer and resist genocide halfway across the world. No nation state should exist through the genocide of another people, particularly when the existence also involves, as it does in Palestine, a longer and ongoing history of colonial and military occupation and apartheid of another's homeland and people's. I want you people of Minnesota to understand these are lies. This is propaganda. And the fact that it is coming from an organization at our university makes my heart hurt. It is so upsetting that this is going on in America. First, Israel is not an apartheid state. Israel is not committing genocide. As I mentioned, there were 1.1 million Gazans 10 years ago, and now they're over 2.2 million. That is the opposite of a genocide. In Gaza, the, the population is flourishing. There are Arab Israelis in the parliament. It cannot be a, an apartheid state. And the fact that our university, where my son was considering going, by the way, not anymore, is putting out statements like this is, it's not even, I'm not even going to say the word hurtful. It's lies. It's propaganda. And the world has gone mad. I look around and I think, has the world gone mad? And yes, friends, it has. That is why in this new year, I pray for truth. I pray pray for clarity. I pray that people get a proper education, that people that are educating our kids know the definition of genocide and apartheid. And clearly at the University of Minnesota in the College of Liberal Arts and American Indian Studies, they do not. These are lies. How do you get to the truth, of course, when you expect your professors and the people that are telling our children things? How do you get to the truth? You have conversations. You open your mind. You listen to each other. You look up definitions of words, and you find out what's really going on. But you can only find that out when you have an open mind. I urge you, friends, open your minds. This conflict did not start in 1978, it did not start in in 1967, it did not start in 2005 when Israel withdrew from Gaza completely. The conflict is historic. The Jewish people are indigenous, thousands, millennia, thousands of years the Jewish people have been there, so again... We can go back to biblical times. That's not what we're going to talk about with our new guests. I just had to get that out because I've been so upset by this statement from the university and still are have been traumatized by the New York Times article on sexual violence and the way Hamas used it and continues to use it on our hostages in Gaza. Let's get back to our guests, because I don't want to eat up all of his time. He's been a frequent guest to the show, Ephraim Cohen, an American currently living in Israel, so an Israeli-American, a former U.S. diplomat for nearly 25 years, former assistant U.S. special envoy to combat anti-Semitism in the last administration. He's had numerous overseas assignments, including Baghdad after the Gulf War, Israel during occupation of Iraqi freedom, and the Second Lebanon War. He is joining me from Israel this morning to share some truths. Ephraim, again, I, I forgive the rant But I am so upset about what universities are preaching and teaching here. And I'm just begging for the truth. So thank you so much for joining me today.
3: Thanks very much for having me, Jordana. It's always a pleasure to be with you. And today it's especially an honor listening to your opening. Um, I really don't have much more to say. I think I can just sit here and listen to you all day.
1: Well, okay. well, then talk to me, because some people will be yelling, no, Israel is an apartheid state. No, they're committing genocide. You know, so just and I I know we have a lot to get to and we have a long segment today, so that's fine. But hearing me read that, that, you know, they're calling uh, the nation state of Israel uh, committing genocide against other uh, against other people, meaning the Palestinian, that they have a history of colonial and military occupation and apartheid. Just hearing that from the University of Minnesota Can you react to that and share your reaction to this ridiculous Uh, statement?
3: Frankly, I'm stunned. Uh, I would hope that anybody with more than a grammar school education would have known better than what they said. First of all, as you said about genocide, the number of Palestinians, I think, has tripled since the 1960s. Mm -hmm. If we're a genocidal country, we're doing a terrible job of it. Um, With regard to colonialism, my understanding of colonialism is, is people who are foreign to the area come into the area for purposes of raping it of its uh, natural resources and whatever there is of value and sending it back to their home country. Well, the history of the Jews in Israel is very different. First of all, this is our historic homeland for thousands of years. Secondly, we did not come to rape the area. We came because we were forced out of our homes in Eastern Europe and, and in the Middle East. We came here to our in, to our homeland, and we are building this homeland. We're not sending wealth back to our, some other country. We are building it from the ground up here, as we've been doing. Well, there's been a a consistent Jewish presence here since the since 2,000 years ago, but more recently, the new development since the 1870s with the or 1880s with the first Aliyah from Eastern Europe. Um, we have done nothing but build this country into the democratic beacon within a a a very non-democratic part of the world. So I Mm -hmm. totally reject the statements of of Minnesota, of the University of Minnesota, just as I reject the inability of the three presidents of of, uh, Penn and Harvard and MIT to be able to say with no question that a call for genocide of the Jews is clearly uh, appalling and contrary to their own policies. So it's interesting because we have a university that calls Jews genocidal at the same time that these three top uh, countries can even uh, top colleges cannot even say that the call for genocide of Jews is improper. And I know that I mean, I wanted to talk about the schools. I'd also like to talk about the hostage situation wherever you want Mm -hmm. to start. I'm happy to go.
1: Yes. And yeah, and I know that, and and we briefly addressed the schools. I know that was was big for you that you wanted to talk about, and I'm glad that I incorporated the University of Minnesota because this was such a shocking statement. And some people say, ah, nobody reads what's on the website. But the fact that there are university professors and adjunct professors with these ideals that in this statement they didn't even address. Hamas, Hamas starting this war, a war that Israel did not want to have, that there was a ceasefire on October 6th, that they didn't even address why this is now happening. And they're calling Israel's response unjustified. This is a war. This is, you know, that, mm-hmm. that we have no right, that Israel has no right to defend itself. This, this statement is so shocking, just as shocking, I think, as like you say, that these three university presidents can't even say the genocide of Jews That must have been shocking for people in Israel as well, even though these are American universities.
3: Well, it happens that I'm a graduate of Harvard Law School. I used to say that with pride. Now I I try to avoid mentioning it whenever possible, but I thought it was appropriate at this point. But we've learned something, uh, not happily, but at least it's good to know from the total moral bankruptcy of the university presidents. First of all, There is no distinction between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, regardless of what they say about context. Um, And the left's dedication to free speech we now see as a sham. When the presidents of those universities said, oh, we have to allow these people to speak freely, they find it very easy to shut down speech that they don't like calling it microaggressions and hate speech. Mm-hmm. They defend those who, and then they dispre, defend threat, those who threaten Jews with bio, actual bodily harm. They say that certain words are violence, but then they laud Hamas's brutality as social justice. And now it appears one of the problems with uh, the move now to remove the Harvard president, Claudine Gray, for alleged plagiarism, is that's a perfect CYA activity by the Harvard board. If they do remove her for that reason, in effect, they will have said that her inability or or, uh, unwillingness to properly attribute something that she wrote in an article is much more serious than her inability to say that killing Jews is wrong. And so they get off the hook, and they send a message to other people that wanting to kill Jews is not that bad after all. Um, Also, we've seen the hypocrisy of of intersectionality and the woke movement. Those same organizations that talked about feminism, the Me Too movement, protecting children, protecting minorities, saying that safe spaces are necessary and hate speech are violence, all of those things are applicable every, to everybody except to Jews. And so what we've learned about these universities is not to revere intelligence for its own sake. We have to ask whether intellectual achievement has galvanized moral clarity and behavior, And sadly, for many American universities, the answer is a resounding no. And so I say to you that these once great institutions are no longer Mm -hmm. institutions of learning, but they're institutions of indoctrination, and they have forfeited their right to any public respect. Let me also draw a parallel between these universities and Hamas. We know that Hamas is a symptom of a problem caused by Iran. Hamas doesn't live in a vacuum. It's being supported by Iran. And it's the same thing with the college administrators. They don't live in a vacuum. They basically are subservient to the faculty. Also, in order to deal with, we have to deal with Iran, or victory over Hamas will be only transitory. And the same thing, we have to deal with the radicalization of college faculties, because the resignation of a few administrators doesn't really solve the problem. Can, um,
1: if I can, you just that? address that yeah. because that I think is something it, for me. I, I am a, a mother of an American college student, and yeah. when all of a sudden, like I, we saw the, the professors at Cornell, and we saw what's going on at Harvard, mm-hmm. and and now of course University of Minnesota, I thought to myself. How are these clueless professors, how are these people who don't know the definition of genocide, who don't understand um, terrorist attacks, how did they get to be professors at college campuses? Can you give me, like, where's the money coming from to fund them? Can you just give me a little bit of background Uh, on that?
3: Sure, sure. Well, the money, one of the major donors, among others, are Qatar and Saudi Arabia. They fund uh, chairs in Middle Eastern studies, and if you've put in several billion dollars into these institutions, uh, then they're certainly willing to follow the party line. Uh, you also, if you take a look at the percentages of professors on elite college campuses now, they are overwhelmingly left or far left, uh, with maybe 3 or 4 percent identifiable as, as uh, conservative. So the people who believe in in uh, many, allowing many different types of people into their schools. That's okay in terms of race, but when it comes to ideas and thoughts and theories, they're not so willing to accept another, uh, another position other than hmm. the party line. Um, you mentioned, uh, actually, that's one of the things I wanted to say. If we wanted to resolve this problem, the only way that schools are going to change is if they are hurt personally just as the only way that we're going to solve the problem of terrorism and hamas is if their supporter meaning iran is hurt personally so for example mm. people have already started stopping their contributions to the schools and i think that's a great idea i think we should no longer allow foreign contributions from Qatar or saudi arabia or any other outside mm. country uh... to these universities I think we should cut off federal funds for any school that is unwilling to support uh, free, ex- uh, free uh, education by minorities, and that includes Jews. So if they violate Title VI, then I think we cut off uh, student loans uh, or student grants. Also, we sh- might even consider removing the tax-exempt status for endowment. Uh, that is not to say that a person can't give uh, money to a school and uh, then claim that as a a personal tax deduction. But why should a school like Harvard that has an endowment of over $40 billion be allowed to build that endowment while not paying any taxes on it, and at the same time allowing this gross distortion of ideas and American values to continue? And the final thing I would do is to revoke the visas of anyone who is studying in American universities but is a foreign student and is unwilling to follow Uh, American ideals and in fact what happened at MIT was that the uh, MIT administration was not going and hesitated to um, to do anything about foreign students who were openly threatening Jewish students because they didn't want the foreign students to lose their visas well it seems to me that you have a foreign visa not as a right but as a privilege and if you can't follow the privilege of not threatening somebody with bodily injury you have no business being on an American campus.
1: I'm speaking with Ephraim Cohen. Ephraim, we have much more to discuss. I want to talk about the hostages. I want to talk about the three-front war. And then, of course, what happens after the war. But something you said, and I wrote it down, was really important. I'm just going to, we're going to go to the commercial. But friends, if you take nothing away from, you know, from Ephraim's conversation, he said, don't revere intelligence for its own sake. We must ask whether intellectual achievement has galvanized moral clarity and behavior. This is interesting. And, and I, I'm victim. I'm a victim. I'm like, wow, how could, you know, you know, Cornell professors and Harvard professors be happy, be euphoric at the sight of this Hamas terror attack because that I have let intellectual achievement, you know, take over my moral clarity. But not anymore, friends, not anymore. This is a time of great awakening, and these conversations are part of it. Ephraim, stay on the line. we got to take a break. When we get back, more on the hostages next. Continue our conversation with Ephraim Cohen, a former assistant U.S. special envoy to combat anti-Semitism. He um, was an ambassador. He was in Baghdad during the Gulf War and Israel during Operation Iraqi Freedom and the Second Lebanon War, and he's joining us. He lives in Israel right now, uh, married a St. Paul girl, Uh, So he's uh, sort of a local boy. But um, Ephraim, we're having a fascinating conversation about anti-Semitism, reaction on college campuses. But I do want to move it forward. Um, You know, I, I said in my lead in, today is October 87th for me. I know it's January 1st for everybody else. But this war in Israel and the Hamas terrorist attack and the taking of hostages and the murder and rape of innocent civilians has affected me so deeply that I I will never be the same. And I I don't expect other people to feel that way, but my connection to Israel is so strong and my connection to my Judaism and the suffering of the Jewish people is very strong. So while I do a show and we talk about other stuff and I pray for a happy new year and I have hope, um, today is October 87th for me, and it will be the 89th or the 88th and the 89th until those hostages are released. Um, Ephraim, can we get the rest of them out?
3: Well, let me start by saying that you express exactly the feeling that many Israelis have. We are stuck on October 7th, um, and there is a sort of a collective sadness in the country because the grief emanates from a recovered sense of peoplehood. We all feel together, and when one part of us is hurt or taken hostage, we all feel it. We open the newspaper every morning dreading to see the names of hostages who have now been discovered to actually be dead or, or uh, soldiers who have been killed. But then we go on and we try to do something about it. With regard to the hostages, um, the first question is, we don't know how many of them are still alive. We pray that all of them who are still there are alive. But we just found out this morning that somebody that we thought was a hostage was actually killed on October 7th. And then his Mm. body was taken back to, to Gaza. So we don't know how many are alive. We don't know how to get them out. We're trying everything that we can, every negotiation that we can. But the problem is, at what price? Uh, Hillary Clinton said recently that that getting the hostages out is the primary and immediate objective of the war. I'm not so sure. There are two parallel objectives. One is, of course, to retrieve the hostages, and the other is to decimate Hamas so that they can never do the same thing again. And if we allow them to negotiate a premature ceasefire, where somebody says, okay, once you get all the hostages out, now the war has to be over. And that's what they want, obviously. They said, we won't mm-hmm. consider releasing hostages until the war is totally stopped. Once we allow a premature ceasefire, then we are guaranteeing more attacks and more hostages will be taken in the future. And let me say this with, without any question. Hamas is responsible for the safety and health of every single hostage that they have taken. What they have done is a violation of every possible rule of war, and there can be no excuse for it. Um, And and so I say, as much as we pray for the hostages' safety, and we pray that when I go to the synagogue every day, we say a prayer for the hostages. And we, we wake up every morning hoping that we will see some more of them. But we also have to say that Hamas is responsible for it, and Hamas must pay a price for it. And they must be stopped from ever doing it again. Incidentally, I I don't want to minimize the hostages. I don't want it to sound as if I'm not at all concerned for them. But Mm -hmm. I'm concerned not just Mm -hmm. for the hostages now, but for the future hostages. Mm -hmm. Because remember, there was an Israeli soldier named Gilad Shalit who was released several years ago in exchange for over a thousand Palestinian security prisoners in Israel. One of those prisoners who was released in exchange for Gilad Shalit was Yahya Sinwar, who is now Mm -hmm. the leader of Hamas in Gaza. And when he Mm -hmm. was released, one of the things he did was he signed a statement promising that he would never return to terrorism. Well, we see how that worked out. More than a third of the people who were released for Gilad Shalit have since returned to terrorism, and I just Mm -hmm. want to make sure that doesn't happen again.
1: You know, every now and then uh, I get a text from some people, and I, I want to read this to you because I think that these texts are worth um, responding to. Uh, Jordana, uh, most again, most Minnesotans understand, you know, that Israel needs to defend itself. They understand that Hamas is a terrorist organization, and Hamas is wrong, and this is a a, a larger war between good and evil, and Hamas being evil. But every now and then, you know, we do get listeners with something like this, Jordana are you also going to address the Israeli bombings of refugee camps and the loss of civilian Palestinians, including many children? Or are Israeli children worth more than Palestinian <clears throat> children? And yes, you may acknowledge this test, but will you answer the questions therein? And Ephraim, I want you to answer that also, but I, I will happily answer that for you. Well, Children's so I death in war... I'll start. Children's death in war is a terrible, terrible thing. And we have... I, and I'm going to speak collectively for the Jewish people, we never want innocent civilians to die in war, ever. But Israel has a right to get its hostages back, to defend itself from the torture and the murder and the invasion of Hamas. And the fact that you think that we don't think Palestinian lives matter, of course they do. but. Israel needs to get its hostages back. If you started this question saying all the hostages should be released immediately, right now, and then we should give aid to people who have damaged by that war, that would be a sane text. There is no equivalency here. And yes, Jews care about innocent Palestinian civilians. But it's also not Israel's responsibility now to protect those civilians. The responsibility is on Hamas, the governing body. Of Gaza, they need to protect their civilians. They have been planning this attack for two years. Did they build bomb shelters? Did they build places for these Gazans to go? They did not. So when you ask me... What is the responsibility or are Israeli children worth more than Palestinian children? Of course, they're not. But Israelis build bomb shelters to protect their children. Gazans or Hamas puts children on the front lines. There have been um, suicide vests fitted for little children that have been found and are evidence in this war. So I ask you. Are Palestinian children worth anything? They are to me. They are to Israeli, la- to Israeli IDF, who are dropping pamphlets and saying, get out, save yourself, or calling people and saying, this is the path. But you need to go ask Hamas, who are shooting at them, to make the civilian casualties higher. That's my response to this question. Yes. If I am, the floor uh, is yours. Yes.
3: There, well, thank you. There's no question that part of the strategy of Hamas is to increase their own uh, casualties. They want to increase their depth so that then they can bring the rest of the world into criticizing Israel. The fact is, Israel does not enjoy killing anybody. We try to avoid it whenever possible. When we make a mistake, we, we admit it and we apologize for it and we try to do better next time. But um, but the point is that Hamas has embedded itself in the civilian population. They are in schools. They are in mosques. They have, uh, as you say, we have found weapons in children's uh, children's rooms. There are tunnels all around Gaza, all through the civilian areas. And so that is clearly a violation of the rules of war. And so when we kill a, a person from Hamas, we try to do it surgically, but sometimes you simply cannot avoid civilian casualties at the same time. Golda Meir famously said, we may forgive you for, for you killing our children. We will not forgive you for you forcing us to kill your children. And that's the way we feel about it. Incidentally, I don't want to let the UN off the hook, because first of all, UNRWA is a UN agency in Gaza, and they, have, they their schools, many of their uh, teachers are also members of Hamas. They teach the children to hate the Jews and to kill the Jews. But the, and in fact, uh, some of the weapons have been stored in UNRWA schools. But more than that, imagine if on October 8th, the United Nations Security Council had voted unanimously to condemn Hamas for war crimes and had deme- demanded the immediate return of all hostages and ordered gutter to extradite hamas leadership to the international criminal court in the hague where they would stand trial for war crimes Mm -hmm. how many civilians lives would have been saved how many hostages lives would have been saved if the u.n had taken a strong stand against the barbarity of hamas and they didn't do it and then you have to ask yourself why didn't they do that Mm -hmm. and i think the answer is obvious we don't have to go into the specifics but that tells you all you need to know about the U.N. and how the U.N. treats Israel.
1: Um, we have a few minutes left. Uh, I want to talk about this three-pronged war and also what happens after the war. Efraim, uh, first of all, do you know how, any idea how long this will last and what does happen after? What will that area look like?
3: Well, how long it's going to last depends not only on Israel but also on the rest of the world. So far, we have gotten tremendous support from the United States, and the United States is our closest ally, and we really need their help, not with boots on the ground, but with continuing to support us on the world stage. So long as the UN or the U.S. stays supportive, uh, I think we'll continue to fight uh, until the job is done, although I think that might take a uh, slightly reduced uh, amount of, of hard fighting. We'll have to be uh, doing it in a different way. But we're going to keep fighting until we decimate uh, Hamas. To predict how long, I don't know, some people say a few weeks, some people say a few months. Some people say the hard fighting will continue for a few months, but then the reduced uh, fighting may go on for months after that. Um, But let me say that you asked about the three-front war. Gaza, clearly Hamas is not yet finished. Hezbollah in the north, things are heating up. Uh, We just stopped a drone attack earlier today at the civilians, uh, at the people up there. Incidentally, over 200,000 Israeli civilians have been evacuated from the north and the south because of constant rocket from both Hezbollah and Hamas. So the north Mm -hmm. Hezbollah. Then you've got the Houthis from Yemen who are attacking shipping and harming world economy. And all of these are Iranian proxies. The problem is that Biden, uh, President Biden, Secretary of State Blinken, both of them obviously want to avoid escalation at all costs. But the problem is the escalation is here. It doesn't matter what the United States wants. It matters how much the other people want to do to attack Israel and to attack the United States. Remember that over 100 American military facilities have been attacked by Iranian proxies. And the response by President Biden has been so weak that there's no incentive for Iran to stop the attacks. The only way to solve this problem is to react forcefully, to make Iran and to make their pro- Iran's proxies pay for what they're doing. To knock out a few uh, uh, warehouses or to sink a few ships doesn't do it. You know that the, the um, drones that the Houthis w- use to attack shipping cost them a few thousand dollars the rockets that the American ships are using to knock those drones out of the sky cost between one and one and a half million dollars. So the Houthis are getting a great payback from their investment, and Iran is getting great payback from their investment. You know, there was an old television advertisement that said uh, that had to do with preventive um, uh, maintenance for cars, and the tagline was, you can pay me now or you can pay me later. Well, it's the same thing with the United States and the rest of the world. This is a battle between 7th century tribalism and modern world values. And if you don't win now, we're just going to have to fight it later and possibly after, God forbid, Iran has a nuclear weapon. So you've got to get in the fight right now because it's only going to get worse if you don't win it now. As far as what's going to happen later on, there are a, couple, there are a number of things that I think are essential First of all, we clearly have to demilitarize Gaza. We have to clear all terrorist and arms infrastructure. Then we need a wide buffer zone along the border so that nobody can get close to the fence. And when I say wide, I mean at least a half a mile or a mile, maybe even more. We have to upgrade the Rafah crossing because uh, it was through that crossing that a, a large amount of arms and also tunnels that a large amount of arms made its way from Egypt into uh, Gaza. And Israel has to be among the people who are administering those, those crossings. Um, and the other thing is people talk about having um, the, pub- the Palestinian Authority, the PA, rule mm-hmm. Gaza. Well, I'm not at all convinced by that, because remember that Gaza has supported Hamas. They have yet to condemn the Hamas attack. Their actions themselves, they teach children to hate Jews. They have a program of pay for slay, uh, mm-hmm. where they actually reimburse, uh, or not reimburse, but actually pay salaries to the families of terrorists, of uh, Palestinian terrorists. And they basically are a corrupt, corrupt kleptocracy. They have not them, proven themselves to be able to rule uh, uh, effectively or to govern effectively the occupied territory, the, the uh, questionable territories, uh, the West Bank, then how can I t- trust them to do Gaza as well? I would like to see um, a an international ruling body similar to what we had in Germany after the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to see countries like the United States, France, Germany, uh, Italy, whatever, England, have them <clears throat> put their money where their mouth is. They should be controlling Gaza until it has been totally do- demilitarized and has proven its willingness to live in peace with its neighbors. Um, Ephraim,
1: you and I are yeah. out of time, but it was, thank you for this conversation. It was enlightening. It's, it, these are hard conversations to have, but I think we need to open our eyes that this is an existential crisis between terrorists and those who want to live in peace. And the people committing these atrocities, her. Hamas, are not do not want to live in peace, and we need to stop it.
3: Thanks very much for having me. It's always an honor, and, and I hope we'll be able to get together. As they say, as the Jews say, I hope we will meet at better times.
1: At better times, my friend. Thank you, Ephraim. Stay safe in Israel, and thank you for the education. And also thank you for your open mind and for listening and being willing to hear the truth. We'll be back after the news.